Many of us come to a spiritual practice because of some form of suffering, dissatisfaction. It might be a a big suffering. It might be a real sense of, wow, I just don't know how this works. Or it might be more subtle, a kind of more existential kind of uh, sense of not really, it's like kind of just... Is this all there is? You know, it, it can it can be a range of of experience that brings us to ask this question: of Is there something that can help me to understand being human? I mean, we could say that's that's part of the question of our spiritual journey. What is there something that will help me to understand what it means to be a human being? And uh, this question of suffering was the question the Buddha asked in his own journey. And uh, so this was what motivated his search. And and at at times he says, at one point he says um, that on a spiritual search that, that when we meet suffering, the question, does anybody know a way or two around or out or through this suffering, is what motivates our search. And he had that question in his own, his own life, his own journey. And that's what motivated his search. And so um, that is where his interest lay and what his understanding really came around was an understanding around suffering, how it happens. What he um, really, uh, one of the, the pieces of what he discovered in his own awakening. It is said the night of his awakening, he had several understandings about what it means to be a human being. And one of those understandings was around how, what is the, the, um, the natural law by which beings um, kind of fare on in our lives? what happens to us, how, why things happen to us, what happens to us. This um, is framed as the teaching on karma. And the, um, the understanding here is pointing to the, uh, why is it that we suffer? You know, that, that what happens in our, in our, um, in our minds, in our hearts, that contributes to how and why we suffer. And so in his understanding around suffering, what he understood is there's certain parts of our experience, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral aspect of experience that is just a part of being human. So we will experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And often we we think or we conflate um, pleasant with happiness and unpleasant with suffering in a way. We, we tend to conflate that or, or we tend to, to think, okay, well, when, I, when pleasant's there, that's good. When unpleasant's there, that's bad. Or when pleasant goes away, that's bad. So we have these views around pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And the... Um, but the, the, and the Buddha said that, that the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral is just part of our human experience. 
our bodies will experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And that is just kind of a fact of, hum- of human life, a fact of, be- of being a being. And so he recognized and acknowledged that that's not going to change. But that what he, what he came to, or what I think what he understood, is that most of what we actually call suffering most of our sense of dissatisfaction, most the whole wide range of what we call suffering from that subtle sense of is this all there is to the deeper suffering around um, loss and illness and death, the, the way our heart constricts and contracts around that. He, he didn't say that loss and illness and death would stop but he did say that our minds can be at ease with these conditions. And so this was the ending of suffering that he was pointing to, is that there's a habitual kind of reactivity we have around pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. We tend to like the pleasant, want more of it, grab it, hold on to it, greed. We tend to not like the unpleasant, push it away, aversion. We often tend to not even notice the neutral, kind of space out around it. We don't connect with the neutral. And so we have these habitual responses with pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And he said in those habitual responses, the habitual responses of greed, aversion, and delusion are where what we can be free of. That is where the freedom from suffering lies. And, and what uh, he discovered is that when we are free of greed, aversion, and delusion, when those fall away, what he taught was when those fall away, there is a deeper kind of freedom and happiness that is available to us as human beings no matter what the conditions are in the world. And I always have to say, because this, is, this sounds like you know, a, a deeper kind of happiness, a peace, an ease with whatever the conditions are, we, we, just with the way that we uh, connect to those words or what, what we think that might mean, we might think it would mean that we sit back and go, oh, okay, yeah, peace, everything's fine in the world. We might think it means that, that we don't respond to the conditions of the world, that that peace means non-action. But my understanding actually is that as our hearts release greed, aversion, and delusion, that what is arising is not nothing, but love and compassion and wisdom, which has a tendency and an interest in acting in the world. And so the, the heart that releases greed, aversion, and delusion is not a non-active heart. It wants to respond to meet the suffering of the world and to alleviate it. And so the peace that we come to with this non-suffering is not a piece of inaction. It's an active form of, that, 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 that wants to respond in a way that is skillful. And so this, uh, this understanding around the skillful, what's skillful, what's unskillful, um, this is the terrain of the teaching on karma. And the Buddha taught that um, 
No, let, I'll just, let's see, I'll just start from kind of, try to come from the top down on karma. It's, I started talking about it the last time I was here and just kind of overviewed a piece of it. Um, so we could say that the, the Buddhist teaching on karma is a teaching on how our actions and our intentions around those actions shape our lives. So um, if we, if we um, let, let's just refer, uh, refer to some kind of common understandings that connect to this, this teaching. Um, what we reap, what we sow. If we, if we plant an apple tree, if we plant an apple seed, an apple tree results. So we reap what we sow. If we plant or we act out of a lot of greed, aversion, and delusion, that tends to be what we do more of. So we reap what we sow. This is a kind of a common, a, a common kind of phrase that reflects this understanding of the teaching of karma. Another one, what goes around comes around. That kind of uh, common everyday language. And so uh, this teaching on karma is understood to be a kind of a, a, lo- a natural law. Our universe, everything in the universe, I think you know, even physics points to this, that the kind of conditionality and cause-effect nature of everything that happens. And it's a lot of conditionality. I understand that in the realm of particle physics, they talk about probabilities. They don't talk about, you know, this will lead to that. They say this will probably lead to that. And there's this percentage of probabilities. So it's, it's not so much deterministic, even at the level of particle physics, is my very rough understanding of that. And so the, the uni- but the universe is governed by laws. And uh, the, in the time of the Buddha, there were, there were understood to be various kinds of laws that govern the universe. There are, there are laws around the environment, you know, laws that govern the weather, things like that. Then there's a lo- there were understood to be laws that govern heredity. And I believe this, this understanding was not at the level of the gene type of heredity at that time of the Buddha, but more along the lines of heredity of like, you know, you plant an apple, tree, apple seed, you get an apple tree. You don't get something else. And so there's this natural law that unfolds in the natural world around heredity. And then there, there become, then there are some natural laws that are understood just around the working of our, of our body. You know, just that the eye, um, if the eye is not damaged, uh, will receive light and produce sight. So, you know, just kind of these, these physical laws uh, of, our, of our physical system. So there's, there's the mental and, mental and uh, physical processes of our mind and body that, that are subject to laws. And then there's a set of, uh, of laws that are the workings of karma. And so the, the understanding of the, the teaching on karma, and it's often termed the law of karma, um, is a natural law. It's not, it's not something that the Buddha made up 
we could say it's more something that he articulated as a discovery. In places in the, in the teachings, it's actually um, connected to the, um, the law of gravity. It, it, it uses an analogy about the law of karma as being like the law of gravity. They say, they say if you have a big heavy stone and you drop it in water, would any amount of wishing make that stone rise to the surface? He said, no, it's just the law that it will fall to the, to the bottom of the pond. And he compared the, the, the teaching of karma to, to that kind of thing, that it's a natural law. And my understanding of that natural law and some of what I explored in the last, the last talk I gave is that the, the workings of karma are very connected to the workings of our, of our system, of our, of our human system. And so the, the, um, um, the fact that what he, what he points to here is that when we engage in action, so the, the framing of the law of karma, um, one teacher, and I think I read this last time too, um, and be, take a little uh, pause here, um, this uh, definition sounds kind of complex, but we'll go through each piece of it. But this is a very concise definition of this, the law of karma. The capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate or connected result. The capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically connected result. So what does that mean? So what this points to is, so we have our body and mind, kind of what we, we have our body and mind, and part of our body-mind system is, uh, is that, um, you know, we, we have this um, choice in a moment, to do something or not do something. There's an intention that arises with every action of body, speech, or mind. There's an intention that's connected with it. And that intention itself is neutral in a way. It's just, it's just a kind of an impulse to do. But that impulse to do something is always connected to some motivation or some reason why we would do something. So our actions of body, speech, and mind are connected to this impulse to do something. And the, the impulse to do something or the, the, the motivation to do something is the, um, um, uh, the kind of direction that that action leads us in. If that motivation is connected with anger or hatred or frustration or confusion, if it's connected in any way with greed, aversion, or delusion, it will tend to lead us in the direction of suffering. It will tend to lead us in that direction. And, and the, my understanding here is, is like it's because of our natural kind of the way our minds and bodies work. Whatever we frequently cultivate or do becomes the inclination of our mind. This is one way, the, another way the Buddha framed this, this understanding that when we frequently engage in greed, aversion, and delusion, we tend to have more of that in our lives. And so this is just natural that as we engage in, in 
non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, more of that becomes present in our, in our lives. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion being the, uh, the absence of these unskillful qualities, greed, aversion, delusion being kind of the root of our unskillful actions, and um, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion manifesting maybe more positively as generosity, kindness, or love, and wisdom. And these also motivate actions and will tend to increase those qualities in our heart and mind as we engage with those. And so this is the... The, the basic understanding here, so the capacity of our intentional actions, so our intentional action connected with some motivation, and that motivation, whether it's greed, aversion, delusion, will tend to condition more greed, aversion, delusion. If, it, if it's non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, it tends to condition more of that. And the... Um, the uh, the consequences of a mind reacting with greed, aversion, and delusion is suffering. And so through this, um, you know, as we engage or, or follow through on an intention that's connected with greed, aversion, and delusion, it's like we're wearing down the groove of that in our minds. And so we te- we're, tending, we're tending to uh, make it easier to go down that groove. And so that becomes more the direction that happens. So the capacity of our intentional action to produce an ethically, let's say, congruent result. So when we tend to act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, it tends to produce more greed, aversion, and delusion, and that tends to produce suffering. So as an analogy... For this, I'll put an analogy into, into this. So uh, if we have a soccer ball and we take our, so the soccer ball is sitting there and we take our leg and we swing and we kick the soccer ball, the, the intention is kind of like the, the momentum or the movement from the, um, the energy, the movement of energy from our leg into the soccer ball. As we swing our leg and hit the soccer ball, the ball will move. That's the intention, is that just that energetic impulse and the energetic transference, the energetic motion that happens. There's the, the, the intention, the, the movement, and then the result is that the soccer ball moves. So that's that, that intention. Now, the motivation is kind of more like which direction or which side of the soccer ball are we kicking are we kicking it on the left or on the right? When we kick it on the, the left side, it, the ball tends to go to the right. If we kick it on the other side, it tends to go the other direction. And so the, um, the uh, motivation or the, um, um, you know, whether it's greed, aversion, delusion, is kind of like that directionality to the kick. That the, the intention is, is more simple, it's just that impulse or that urge or that energetic impulse. The, what that impulse is connected with, which direction you're put, putting, putting the kick from, tends to influence which direction the ball will go. And so this is uh, the, um, the congruence of results. 
So if we uh, engage out of greed, aversion, delusion, we kick the ball from this way, our minds tend to go in that direction. If we kick the ball from the other way, our minds tend to go in another direction. So that's a kind of basic framing of the teaching of karma, but I want to add another piece in there because the, um, the, the actual um, uh, framing of the teaching of karma is not that if we, um, if we um, act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, then the result is greed, aversion, and delusion. It's the tendency towards greed, aversion, and delusion. If we act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, the result will be, if we, if we act in a certain direction, if we act out of unwholesome tendencies, out of greed, aversion, and delusion, the result tends to be unpleasant. If we act out of uh, wholesome qualities, out of love, of wisdom, compassion, kindness, the result will be felt as pleasant. So this is, the, this is the, the way the teaching on karma is framed. So it's not that the greed, aversion, and delusion creates more greed, aversion, and delusion. It tends to create unpleasantness in our experience. And that tends to um, have us respond with more reactivity because that's what we've conditioned. So the tendency is there towards the greed, aversion, and delusion when we have done a lot of it. But it's not necessarily the result. Because greed, as I talked about earlier, when there's pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral in our experience, we tend to respond with greed to the pleasant. We tend to respond to... um, aversion to the, uh, to the unpleasant and kind of confusion or delusion to the neutral. So we tend to respond that way. But it's not necessary that we respond that way. There's other things that can happen. Wholesome response can happen to greed. I mean, to wholesome response can happen to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So the, um, when we act with uh, wholesome qualities in mind, it tends us in the direction of experiencing or having being the result to be felt as pleasant. The result of wholesome uh, actions is, to be f- is tended to be felt as pleasant. So this is now introducing the next step or the next piece of the teaching on karma. The, uh, the karma... The, the word karma is kind of familiar in our language. It's used kind of all over the place. Um, you know, it's like people will say, oh, that's your karma. You know, you're experiencing something. Oh, that's your karma. That's actually confusing the, the term because the term in the, um, in the Pali language, the term karma, or that's the Sanskrit actually, kama is the Pali. The term kama in the, in the Pali means the action. So the, the, the karma is this intention and this motivation that's connected with it. And then there's a piece that that, that t- intention and motivation leads to a particular result. And so there's the the intention, the action, and then there's the, the, the result of that intention and action. 
And so this is the, the next piece of the teaching, is what do particular um, uh, actions with particular motivations result in? So this is the result of karma now that we're exploring. So there's the, the action, the kind of the motivation, what we do, how we engage, and then there's what tends to follow from that. So the... Um, so there's a distinction between the karma, which is the action, and the result of karma. And typically, I think when people use the word karma in our, uh, in our language, you know, just more commonly, they're referring to the results of karma. You know, it's, it's they're, they're skewing that. They're talking about, you know, when they say it's, oh, this what you're experiencing is your karma. They're pointing to results of karma. And probably not even in a very, um, you know, helpful way. <laughs> <laughs> because actually, and I'll bring this in a little bit more later, the Buddha um, did not say that everything we are experiencing is a result of our karma. And that's a common misunderstanding. So I'll just put that aside for the moment and, and explore a little bit more the, the, the result of karma itself. So... Um, So in the soccer ball analogy, we have the, um, you know, the, the kicking of the ball, and the kicking of the ball is the karma. The direction we kick it from is part of that karma too. The, 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 the motivation, the directionality of that is, is the karma. The result is the direction that the ball moves. So that's, that's the result of that of that, uh, that, so in this analogy, the, the direction that the ball moves is the result of the karma. So in, the, in the, the teaching, the Buddha says that the intention is this direction, uh, is the, you know, the skillful or unskillful motivation that's connected with actions, whether we're acting out of greed, aversion, delusion, or non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. And the result will be the consequences of that. And as he, he points to, the, the result of acting out of greed, aversion, delusion tends to be felt as unpleasant. The result of, of uh, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion tends to be felt as pleasant. The, this, um, the, this is a kind of cause-effect relationship here that we're talking about. And yet it's not... Um, there's a distinction in the way the Buddha taught karma, and I think it comes down to this this piece of him saying that the the result of karma is this feeling, something to be felt as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Karma is not so that it's got this cause effect relationship. When we do something out of greed, aversion, or delusion, we will experience something unpleasant. That's, the, that's kind of the, the direction there. So that's a cause-effect relationship. But what he did not say is how unpleasant it would be and how long that unpleasantness would last. So, the, you know, it's like, so we do something unskillful. In certain situations, in certain conditions, sometimes the result of that karma might be felt like hugely. And other times it might just be felt like a little kind of, ugh, a little bit of, oh, that wasn't very pleasant. And other times it might be huge. There's a, a place, um, 
the Buddha says, there's a case where a trifling unwholesome action done by a certain individual takes them to hell. And there's the case where the very same sort of trifling, unwholesome action done by another individual is experienced in here and now and for the most part barely appears for an instant. And so the unpleasantness that results is not necessarily determined based on that, only on that one moment of that, that kind of, that action that, of kicking that soccer ball, whatever it is that we choose to do. You know, that moment of that with that intention is not the only thing that contributes to how we experience the result. And so these results are not understood to be deterministic. There's many conditions that can come into play that can affect how our... Um, our karma is experienced, how, how the results of karma are experienced. So, um, I know this is complicated. I'm trying to make it clear. Um, so, the, this determinism, this sense of determinism, in the time of the Buddha, there were many um, different views on how our actions resulted in consequences. And one of them was very deterministic in that it was kind of like, if you did such and such, then you experienced the results in this way. And so, you know, if you killed somebody, you would at some point, whether in this life or another life, in the, in the Buddhist teachings, it's, it's um, there's understood to be, and in the time of the Buddha, there were understood to be, you know, multiple lives, and this um, this part actually of the teaching of karma, which we'll see if I get to that today. <laughs> um, so, if you killed somebody in this life, then you would be killed in some future existence, whether in this life or in another life. So, th- th- it was kind of like this, you know, what you do will come to you in this way. Um, so, there's that that kind of you know deterministic result. What the Buddha pointed to is that um, in the um, uh, in the, the ripening of our karma, so it's it's so there's other conditions at play. Let's let's imagine the soccer ball again. We're kicking the soccer ball and um, there's a strong wind. So we're kicking the soccer ball. Suppose we're kicking the soccer ball in the direction of the, of the wind. It will tend to go further than it would if there was no wind. If we're kicking it in the other direction, it may be, depending on the strength of the wind, it may be just that the soccer ball doesn't go as far in that direction, or it may be that it actually like, turns around and goes the other direction. So there's, you know, there are different conditions that can be at play. The Buddha points to this in another analogy, uh, he says, suppose one were to drop a salt crystal into a small amount of water in a cup. Would the water in the cup become salty because of the salt crystal and unfit to drink? So if we put a tablespoon of water, a tablespoon of salt in a cup of water, not going to be drinkable. But if you put that same tablespoon of water in a huge lake, and then take a cup of that water, it's going to be drinkable because the 
the purity of the water in the larger lake kind of dilutes it to the point that you barely can notice it. It's not that the salt is not there. It's not that there's not some experience of that. It's just barely, barely tasteable. Maybe not even tasteable to our, to our tongue. And so the, um, the conditions of our lives, of our minds, also affect the result of our karma. If, our, if, we, have, if we have been engaging in um, wholesome conduct, you know, if our minds, if we've been committing to wholesome conduct and engaging in that direction, then it's possible that we do something unwholesome or unskillful out of a slip of mind or something. We will probably experience the results of that. We will experience an unpleasantness to that. That, that, that uh, unwholesome karma. But it may be that it, that, that unwholesomeness or that, that unpleasantness is experienced just for a moment and we recognize, oh, that was unskillful and we recommit to the skillful. So there's, there's different conditions in our mind. If, if somebody has been habitually cultivating greed, aversion, and delusion in their minds, habitually engaging in anger and hatred in, in the way they engage in the world, they may do something small, and that may create conditions that, that um, are vastly um, um, experienced as really, really unpleasant for them. A deeper kind of um, pain. So that's, that's a piece of, of the, um, the teaching, that the results are not deterministic. There's a lot of different influences that come into play. I might get back to that in just a, a moment. There's another piece um, that the, um, the, the, like a seed, like a seed, you know, will turn into a tree, the results of karma are not necessarily immediate. And so it's, it's not necessarily that as soon as we do an action, we will experience the results of that karma. So there are times when we do something and we'll experience immediately a kind of a, a, a rebound of that. Let's talk about, you know, and sometimes it might be, it might be um, much later that we'd experience the results of that. So let's look at something like, well, let's look at the seed analogy first, and then we'll look at something in our experience. So in the seed, when we plant a seed, you know, it's got the capacity, that seed has the capacity to turn into a tree. Um, and, and so if it gets planted in the ground, um, it gets water, it gets nourishment, it's not, um, you know, trampled over or mowed over, it will eventually, you know, grow into a tree. But there's a lot of conditions that come into play about how big of a tree it comes into, whether it, it kind of gets cut down early, <laughs> doesn't get very far in its life. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of conditions that come into play about how, how far that seed will develop into a tree how far it will go to produce more seeds in the future. 
And it can take time, you know, it might be sitting there for a long time before the conditions come into being that create the conditions for it to ripen into a tree growing. It could sit in dry ground for a very long time before the rains come. So the, the timing of the, um, the result of karma is varied, again, depending on conditions. So another thing the Buddha said is that there's so many conditions that come into play in terms of karma and the result of karma that we should not try to figure it out that if we tried to figure out what, what is this act, you know, what is this feeling as a result of? Is it a result of that thing that I did two years ago? Is it a result of something I did yesterday? Is it something somebody else did that I responded to? If we try to figure that out, he said, we'll go mad. And so he really pointed us to, you know, what's important is noticing in the present moment what's arising, what results of karma are arising, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And how are we responding to it now? Because our response to it now is what shapes the karma of our future. So, for example, um, you know, in terms of the, um, the timing of karma ripening, if we tell a lie, so unwholesome karma, we tell a lie, it might have immediate consequences if we're really paying attention, if we're, if we're aware with mindfulness uh, of, you know, maybe lapse of mindfulness when we tell the lie, but immediately aware afterwards, we, oh, I told that lie. We might be aware of some immediate consequences of that, of agitation, worry, an unpleasant experience in our body of having re- realized, oh, that wasn't helpful. So it, we may have some immediate consequences. There may be some immediate consequences of that unwholesome action. We also might have some immediate consequences if we're not terribly mindful of feeling pleasantness. Oh, relief. Oh, I've gotten out of that one. That relief is based on some delusion of thinking that there won't be consequences to this lie. <laughs> so, so there's that you know, possibility that you know, in the, in the moment, if, we, if we're not really aware of what it feels like to have told a lie, because that feeling, and this is part of how our mindfulness works with, with these, um, you know, intentions and actions, that as we see unwholesome intentions, unwholesome actions, and see what happens as a result of them, we feel pretty immediately, oh, that result of that was, is unpleasant. It's painful to have done that. And so that is a way in which our system gives us a different education about these actions and the results. When we're mindful, our system learns much more quickly about the consequences of unwholesome action. But much of the time, especially before we meet the practice, we're not so mindful. We're kind of going along in our normal, habitual way of how we've reacted and responded to things. So we maybe feel good about having told that lie. We feel happy. We feel relieved. And maybe two years later, that person finds out we told that lie. At that point, we may experience some consequence of this. You know, some, some, some 
unpleasant experience may come back to us many years later. And so these, the results of the actions, the intentions, sometimes they'll come back to us immediately, sometimes in the future in this life, and as the teachings of the Buddha go, sometimes in future lives. We, won't, we don't necessarily experience all the results of all the actions we do in this life. In this life. We may experience them in future lives. So the other um, piece around the non-deterministic nature of the, um, of the teachings that I wanted to bring back is that... Um, so I talked about like the, the soccer ball analogy. And, um, you know, you kick the soccer ball one direction and it tends to go in that direction. But if the wind is blowing, you know, it may go another direction. So as you're kicking the soccer ball, if you want it to go somewhere, you kind of have to take into consideration the conditions. Um, but the, the results of karma are also affected not only by what's happening, what's happened, what we've cultivated, kind of the climate of our mind, so that seed crystal analogy, the, seed, the salt analogy. And if we do an unwholesome action, but we've largely been cultivating wholesomeness in our lives, it's like dropping that salt crystal into a bigger pond of water. So maybe that we experience a, a smaller kind of effect of that unwholesome action. But the teachings of the Buddha also point to it's not just what we've done in the past that affects how our karma unfolds. It's how we are now in the moment that affects how our karma unfolds. That's a big place. So I talked about that, that how we are with pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. If instead of reacting to pleasant, unpleasant, neutral with greed, aversion, and delusion is our habitual reaction, we're mindful of it, that creates a whole different condition. And so how we are in this moment affects the unfolding of those results. But not only that, how we are in the future can affect how this moment's karma will unfold. So the salt crystal analogy, if we drop uh, a salt crystal into a small pool of water and then it rains, you know, in the winter it rains, you know, the, 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 the um, pool fills up more and dilutes the uh, crystal, the salt crystal more. And so this understanding is that how we are not only now but going forward. And each moment, I mean the future is basically composed of a whole bunch of moments of now. (laughs) And so that's where we have some say in the matter is in this moment's experience. But all of our actions in this moment have the capacity to... uh, change the direction of the unfolding of our karma to, to shift it into a more wholesome direction. It's as if we kick that soccer ball and there's no wind and then suddenly a big wind comes up and puts it, puts it in the other direction. So what happens in the future 
can also affect this unfolding. There's a story about this. I'll tell this story briefly and then stop for some questions and won't get to the rebirth thing. Maybe I'll do that next time. Um, um, There's some other issues around karma too that are interesting. (laughs) Free will is one of them people often bring. So next time I I think I'll, I'll explore the free will question and the and the uh, rebirth question. Those are often two big questions around karma. Um, there's a story in the suttas about a mass murderer at the time of a Buddha. He killed 999 people. He had been um, encouraged to do this by his spiritual teacher, not a Buddhist teacher, but a spiritual teacher who was jealous of him and set him this task to... Uh, take him down, basically. But he told him that this was how his spiritual life would come to fruition. So he lied to him. His teacher lied to him. And he went off to kill people. And it's said that as he did that, you know, kind of, you know, he, he, his, his name initially was Harmless Ahimsa. And um, that was what the name his parents gave him. And he was... Uh, he was a very kind child, and, and so this was very counter to his nature. But it's said that over the, the years of killing so many people that he came to love killing people. And so this is how, you know, how it happens, that we, we engage in something over and over again. It becomes the inclination of the mind. And so he killed 999 people. And um, the Buddha, I mean, this was happening in the neighborhood of the Buddha, and the Buddha um, heard about this, and, and uh, kind of, it said that the Buddha had some psychic powers of being able to um, uh, see into people's minds, and he, it said that he saw into Angulimala's mind and recognized that he had kind of wholesome karma in his background, and that he had the capacity to awaken in this lifetime that he had enough wholesome karma to, f- to become free in this lifetime. But he was getting ready to kill his own mother. And this kind of uh, karma is a very powerful, killing your parents is understood to be a very powerful, unwholesome action. And if he did that, then that would um, create enough unwholesome karma in this life that he would not be able to be freed in this lifetime. And so the Buddha saw this, you know, this is kind of mythological part of the story, saw this, but, but there's the story that the Buddha um, went and confronted Angulimala and through some kind of magical uh, um, action of his own uh, made it appear that the Buddha was just walking very slowly and Angulimala was running as fast as he could to try to catch him because he, he, saw, he saw his mother coming. He said, oh, she'll be easy. I can kill her. But then he, he saw the Buddha and, and he was walking so slowly, he figured, oh, he'll be even easier. So I'll kill the Buddha. So that's what, what he was getting ready to do. But the Buddha created these conditions in the mind of it appearing like he was walking very slowly and Angulimala could not catch up with him. And so Angulimala... Um, um, asked him to stop. And the Buddha turned around and kept walking and said, I have stopped. It's time for you to stop. This kind of 
shook Angulimala's mind and he said, but he's still moving. He hasn't stopped. What, he sa- what is he saying? And so it kind of confused him and he, and he stopped and, and asked the Buddha, what did he mean? And the Buddha gave him a teaching around what he was doing and what the consequences of it were. And it is said that Angulimala understood enough that he uh, became a follower of the Buddha. And over the course of the next months, maybe years, it doesn't say how long, he practiced, he meditated. He was kind of protected in the, in the Buddha's um, uh, sangha. He, got, he, he was protected in that the king who was actually out to kill Ungulimala, the Buddha said, well, here's Ungulimala, he's now a monastic I had, I'm vouching for him, basically. And so the king uh, allowed Angulimala to live. And um, over months of years and years of practice, and you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to meditate having killed 999 people. You know, just that. What goes on in the mind? I know for myself, when I've done things that are unskillful, they revisit me in meditation, and there's a kind of the feeling. This is some of how karma manifests. You know, we, we revisit that and recognize that was not wholesome. We feel the pain of that. And so um, Angulimala um, becoming um, uh, a meditator and observing his own mind, it is said that he completely released greed, aversion, and delusion in this lifetime. He became free of greed, aversion, and delusion. Now, and, and the, the story, it's interesting because it says he, he, he awakened and became one of the arhants. And, and often in the, in the suttas, that's the end of the story. You know, it's like a happy ending. You know, the, this person became one of the, the, the arhants. They became fully awakened. In the Angulimala story, it doesn't stop there. It says he, he went out for alms round after he became awakened. And people threw things at him. They threw sticks at him. They threw clods of dirt at him. He got nicks of, you know, because they knew he was the person that had, you know, been killing people. They knew it was the same person. And so um, when he came back and reported that to the Buddha, the Buddha said, Bear it, Angulimala. You are experiencing in this very life the consequences of your actions of killing so many people, for which had you not found this path, you would have burned in hell for many thousands of years. And so this is again the teaching on future lives of the, the, um, the consequences of that kind of, that level of unwholesome action. And yet because he stopped and uh, began observing his own mind, he did experience not only in his meditation the consequences of that unwholesome karma, the unpleasantness of that. He also experienced the unpleasantness with with respect to people um, throwing things at him. And and the the Buddha says this is this is part of the results of what what you were doing. But the the, the seeing here that the um, the results being so much uh, less powerful than if he had not met the Buddha and done the practice. 
So the, this teaching actually inspires me a lot, the teaching of Angulimala, because here's a, here's a person who killed 999 people and learned the teachings of the Buddha and began practicing, began uh, looking at his own mind, freeing it from those habitual patterns of greed, aversion, and delusion through this practice, engaging, committing himself to engage in non-harming. That, that is a different kind of karma. That is also a karma. This cultivation or development of the practice is a, is a, it's more powerful in a way, I think not in, in not only in a way, but it's more powerful. It's, it's like the, these, 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 the moments of wisdom and mindfulness have a power to free us from, to, to release our unwholesome karma, shift the direction of our lives entirely. And so the, the cultivation of the wisdom and the mindfulness is a creation of wholesome karma that has a capacity to transform our lives. And so if we think about what's useful to do going forward in the future, it is this cultivation of wisdom, kindness, non-harming conduct, mindfulness. That has a very powerful potency to it that I think is more potent. You know, it has to be more potent than greed, aversion, delusion. Because it has a capacity to uproot them. So, no time for questions today. Sorry about that. Next week. (laughs) Thank you.